Hello, listeners. I'm Bridget. And I'm Caroline. You're listening to Hearth, Home, and Homicide, a family production about family murders. My daughter Caroline and I narrate each story, and son and brother Andy is our producer. As Caroline and I talk about each family murder, we keep sensitivity for victims and their families in mind. Our podcasts do include violence and trauma. Listener discretion is advised. So Caroline, this is a busy time of year for a parent and Mm -hmm. not so much for a grandparent, but maybe a little bit busier. Anyway, how are you doing with all of the holiday fixings and everything that's going on? I love this time of year, actually, myself. I I don't know why. I feel for as cold and hibernating as the winter is, I think that the holiday season actually presents like this warm, soft glow in the midst of all that. And so it's just my favorite season. So I try to get prepared ahead of time and I do okay, but it's I'm not that great of a planner. So my kids have a great Christmas, but I'm always uh, a stressed, neurotic mess about it behind the scenes. <laughs> oh, welcome to America. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. Beautiful time of total chaos. <laughs> you know, earlier you and I were talking about how children are so often exploited, in a, a, especially back when it was a necessary part of survival for a family to have the children helping with not just household chores to earn allowance. It was none of that. That was a foreign concept still on the horizon. But the idea that a child can help you bring in the crops and and uh, 10 children can bring in that many more crops and on and on and on. And today's story is not about that, but it is about a child and uh, parents who loved, adored, and uh, put everything into this child. And this child was everything to them. And uh, and it's also about a an, a, a wonderful man who uh, maybe was not so wonderful, but maybe he is. I'm not sure. So today's story is a little different um, because it's. It's got some characters in here, none of whom are what I would call pure. They've all got interesting, maybe a couple of them, but not not many. So we call our episode today The Music Room, and as we move our way through the story, our listeners will understand a little bit more about that. But it's the close of the 1800s, and a baby named Ash Robinson is born. He was told by his father when he graduated college that he had inherited $69,000 to be awarded to him when he graduated college. Now, $69,000 at the turn of the century uh, was, you know, a million dollars or more. So here you go, son. Um, And he gave the following advice, which I found, find, you know, very unique. Uh, This is more money than most men ever see in their lifetime of hard work, he said. I urge you to spend it as fast as you can until you are broke. You have to make your own way in the world 
after that. So Ash Robinson is off to the world and he's uh, got a million dollars or 69,000 and his purpose is to spend it all so that he can have a real life, meaning make your way in the world. And he traveled. He had many traveling adventures during this time and he married in New Orleans to a woman named Rhea who had been brought up rich and then whose family had lost everything. So they were both broke and neither had any doubt that they would work their way back. Rhea followed Ash wherever he wanted to go to find his fortune. There was boom and bust, boom and bust over and over again until they got to Houston, Texas. What used to be a stinky swamp was now an oil field as far as the eye could see. And by the way, Caroline, that stinky swamp of Houston before it was developed was because the earth there was oozing with oil. Uh And, you know, that was so close to the surface at that time that it stunk. Horses were out of fashion at that time and everyone wanted to drive a car. Ash and Rhea were going to make it big in Houston and they decided to settle there. Ash worked night and day doing anything and everything and eventually made it rich as an independent speculator and investor. Ash made millions and more millions in oil and gas speculation and investing in real estate. He almost went to prison once for swindling in one of his deals, but he got off. This man must feel like a giant, Caroline, impervious to everything, including the law, maybe. Yeah, I'm curious what it was that, like, the details of the deal, because the timing of this era... This all still seems to match up real, <laughs> you know. I mean, it's a bit of the Wild West still around this time. It's oh yeah, just before the Depression. So a lot of people are doing really well. Everyone feels the opportunity is available for them to do well too. I should say. Yes, so. yes. Ria was happy but not contented. She found out she was unable to have children, and this was a mighty and crushing blow to her. Ash really wanted children too. He wanted a family he could dote on. So he did an Ash Robinson sort of thing. And this is how it went. First word I'm going to use is secretly. (laughs) And that's going to come up over and over again. Secretly, Ash Robinson paid a woman to allow him to father a child that she would carry. And when that child was about ready to be born, Ash asked Rhea to please consider adopting, and he kept after her about it. And she hesitated, but one day at Ash's coaxing, she relented. It was 1931, and Ash told Rhea about an adoption agency. Edna Gladney's Blossoms in the Desert is what it was called. Edna Gladney helped well-to-do families adopt out their illegitimate children under her watchful I. Wow. Yeah, this is the part of the story that really makes me think back to when I, it was like 1989, 1990, 1991. We watched a lot of Unsolved Mysteries with Robert Stack. And so many of those stories were the Dust Bowl depression adopted babies. You know, these babies who just got torn away from their homes. They didn't even know, you know, they meet eight other kids that same thing happened to them. 
So, I mean, this is just, it's so, that makes me think that this is not abnormal. It's completely abnormal to me. And it, it is so crazy because Ash, you know, approaching a woman with money in order to impregnate her so he can later adopt the baby. There are other ways to tell that story that aren't very nice or pretty. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's weird, but it also seems really par for the course at the same time. Yes. Well, Ash and Rhea adopted a new baby girl, and she was just one month old. They named their daughter Joan. Of course, she was spoiled. She was indulged. And when she was only four years old, she fell in love with horses. Now, that's kind of a bromide. In other words, that little girls love horses. Well, not all little girls love horses, but when they see a horse, a pony or whatever, I mean, you know, it's like gone with the wind, you know, little baby uh, blue bonnet, the baby of the family that dies because she wanted a horse so bad. But, you know, it's that's that's a thing. Little girls want a pony for Christmas and all that kind of thing. Well, that was that was her, um, Joan. She she loved horses. And by the time Joan was in high school, when most people had kind of outgrown the horsey, give me a pony for Christmas. No, she had won hundreds of ribbons and trophies. So this is one of those times where she, at a very young age, knew what she wanted and she stuck with it. For many years, Joan Robinson was the queen of the equestrian universe. She piled up uh, trophies faster than any other rider. And by her teen years, her beautiful face was seen in the society pages of the Houston Chronicle as a breathtaking and beautiful sportswoman. She could not have made Ash Robinson and Rhea more proud. So you can find, here I'm talking to our listeners, you you can find articles on Google about Joan Robinson and her horse, Beloved Belinda. The pair were written about and pictures were taken of them hundreds, probably hundreds of thousands of times. And you'll see Joan wearing her ponytail, which she never let go of. I don't mean she's fondling her ponytail all the time. I mean, she never stopped wearing a ponytail as she grew older. That was her look. She stuck with it. It's who she was. And I do want to kind of unpack all of this, Caroline. First, starting with the adoption of his own child. Yeah. Um, That's a mighty big secret. Yeah. I just wonder how common of a secret that is, especially at this time. (laughs) You know, like, it's it's a huge secret, but I think the most, the person who has the most to both gain and lose from that secret is the child, right? Right. I mean, this child is gaining a worldview based on the realities being presented to it. So I don't, did they ever tell Joan that she was, you know, the origin story or is this? I don't think so. This is just a secret we know. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And the way Joan progressed into a star, she's a star. And see, I'm looking at, I'm looking at her father, Ash, and I'm thinking, he's thinking, Look at me and what I did. Yes. Look what I created. Yeah. Yes. He can get a fortune, lose it, be given a fortune, lose it, make another fortune, make another, get it, almost get in prison, got out of that, whatever it was, 
Um, want children, be told his wife can't have children. Yes. Out and gets it anyway. Like, I mean. he If he were living in the era of uh, vanity, uh, vanity automobile license plates, he would probably put on there God or he would put on there Maestro or <laughs> Puppeteer. Yeah. yeah. King of the world. King of the world. He's got to have a bit of an ego around that, right? Or a false sense of, um, you know, I can do what I want. Yeah. Like I'm above. I don't, the... I don't, I think that is exactly it. Yeah. Uh, he, he feels like he, he has learned that he can have anything that he works for and he's willing to work for anything, including a, that involves a secret or swindling somebody or whatever, including the, the ends justify the means. Yeah. So I, I do think he probably thought of himself as a, as a God. Uh, he had a God complex maybe, but you know, I can't help but like him because he's doting on his wife and he's doting on his little girl. So Joan Robinson was unlucky in love. Unfortunately, she had two failed marriages. Each marriage lasted six months. So I don't know how you time it like that. Like, you know, it's almost like, you know, an expiration date written somewhere on the bottom of her marriage license. The first one was to an officer in the military. And the second one was to a lawyer. By the early 1950s, Joan had it all, including disillusionment and loss. So she thought that anything that she wanted would turn out like getting trophies and winning and being beautiful and being photographed and everything's perfect. But she found out and got divorced twice that, you know, true love is a little bit more difficult and deeper than that. Well, they are short marriages too. It wasn't like she was with these people for a year. I don't think you can build any kind of rapport with a person in six months because it's still surface level in six months. At least to me, it would be, you haven't even done any of the work of settling in yet to this. I don't know. Right. So that, no, so she just, doesn't set, she doesn't appear to me any more than her father to be someone who's going to give an inch. Yeah. And there you go. Maybe that's really what has happened. Cause I just feel like gosh, why would you even get married at all after that? Like maybe you're not the marrying type and maybe that's what you should. I mean, you do your own thing. You do your equestrian thing. Like you're a God in your own right. As a woman, I know it's not a good time in history to be a woman. I'm sure you could get a bank account through your dad or like, you know. I think it's okay when you have a ready-made money chest. Yeah. Uh, It's not a good time for a working woman. Yeah, or someone who is suddenly uh, widowed, or someone who is suddenly, um, you know, ill. Yeah, uh, but a beautiful, entitled princess yeah. like Joan, she probably did all right. Actually, you know, I'm going to stop saying she was married two times. I'm going to say she had two weddings. Yeah, and once the weddings were over. That was the, what are you doing in my house right, kind of right. thing to her husband. Like, I don't really like you here now. Yes. <laughs> I'm yes. curious about the details around those attempts, I'll say. One day, she met a man with stunning good looks at a society party, although the man, John Hill, was actually quite broke. 
He was just at the party as a great place to meet society women. He was studying to be a doctor, but he was also painfully quiet and awkward, and he was seriously into classical music, meaning that was his one-track mind, classical music. He played numerous instruments, and he just couldn't hold much of a conversation if it was not about music. And Joan, on the other hand, flamboyant and dramatic, had a bit of a brash side, and she was the absolute queen of equestrians in top society. So obviously, when she was at a high society party, everybody was going to fawn all over her about her latest award or ribbon or uh, you know, whatever she was hosting in the way of high society fundraisers or whatever. Well, and plus, I think after cars, you know, as you said, horses fell, fell out of fashion as the transportation mode, but they became the moniker of the upper crust sort of pastimes, you know, because there's not really a lot of money. It takes a lot of money to hold. Right. Keep a horse. Yeah. Horses yeah. became, uh, a, uh, yeah, a, you're right, a pastime for the rich. Yes. Um, now, did John Hill realize that that's what she was all about? Or was his head in the clouds over her money and not her? Uh, in the world of his ambitions as a doctor and his beloved classical music world, where is Joan going to stand? I mean, that's what I see. Yeah. How is this ever going to work out? The two tried in the first two years of their marriage to indulge each other's passion, but it became clear over time that they were both feigning interest in each other's world. Um, I should mention something about their wedding. Joan Olive Robinson and John Robert Hill married in a spectacular and lavish society wedding in September of 1957. And, you know, I do know that they wanted to, they both wanted to work it out. They both really did. Certainly Joan wanted to have a family of her own. By then she was even ready to give up her horses to make a family and devote herself to the family. So that says a lot. That's huge. Well, and if they're both trying and we've made it over one year, sounds like into two. And if they're both trying, then that then that's a marriage. <laughs> Well, it's that yearning. And yeah. if you have a common yearning with someone, it makes more sense. It's easier. It's more, it's more relaxed to pursue your common yearning. Yeah. And that's what makes, I think, the early years easier. That and probably sex life. But, Maybe. you know, the, the idea that you're building something together I think, has a universal appeal. Yeah. So for a few years, Joan and, Je Joan and John were happy. He did very well. He went into plastic surgery. Um, they, were, they were quite rich already because of the uh, ash heaping things upon them, uh, valuable things. They had a son named Robert, but they called him Boot. I love that nickname. I do too. John was focused on his music. And in their home, he built a fantastic room in their mansion that was devoted solely to music. This is the music room, 
after which our episode is named. It was quite famous. You know, Joan used to get in all the magazines with her horsemanship and her awards. Now he's in all the magazines for having the music room. It was quite unique. In fact, John's focus on music was so great that he really wasn't doing all that well as a surgeon by the time he and Joan had been married just a few years. And he was having an affair with a woman named Ann Kurth. That's kind of an edgy name, Ann Kurth. Yeah. Um, Sounds like she could, you know, wield a knife and cut right into the heart of a marriage. Well, yeah, I mean, that each falls off. She's just Kurt. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes. It's like if you take the word earth and uh, you take the word art out of it, it's just eh. Yes, exactly. <laughs> That's another good one. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, and Kurth was earth without art. <laughs> we don't know her personally. But we don't know her There's an assumption no. here. No, no. <laughs> And in the midst of this weird mix of having everything and yet nothing in common, Joan became critically ill. It was a mysterious loss of vitality leading to deathbed at home with John, with him sequestering her, cutting her off from visitors. Joan ultimately died, and many believe John had, quote, let her die whilst carry on, carrying on his music obsession and his affair with Anne Kurth. It was a murder by omission, sort of, is what I they like were that saying. Term. I mean, I think technically it's like negligence is the legal term, but murder by omission is r- more realistic and more accurate. Right, right. And you, you would have to be someone who knew the steps to take to save a life to omit those known remedies. And so a doctor, I can see, you know, could be accused of that where some people would not be accused of it because they would say, well, how was I supposed to know? know. But you're right, because a doctor would have the responsibility under their oath to call for help at the very least at certain points. So you're right. That's right. Plus that oath of do no harm. And harm can come from doing nothing. Nothing. Yes, exactly. Joan Robinson Hill died in Sharpston General Hospital in Houston. She was only 38 years old. That's sad. No one understood what was ailing her or what to do about it. The last word on her lips was John. Still hoping her husband, John Hill, Dr. John Hill would be the husband and protector he had failed to be thus far. Now, Caroline, by Texas law, she would be autopsied. John placed a call to the funeral home to come and get his wife's body, although he had expressed to the doctors attending his wife that he agreed to the legal requirement, that the legal requirement was clear and that Joan should be autopsied. But he still made that call. I'm coming by to pick up her body. When the hospital's pathologist, Dr. Arthur Morse, was contacted to come in to perform the autopsy, he came to the hospital. He arrived at 9 a.m., but upon arrival, the body was not in the hospital. 
making it kind of tough for, you know, the doctor to perform his autopsy. Right. <laughs> Dr. Morse arrived at the funeral home by 10 a.m., but found the body had already been embalmed. So this is not even 12 hours later, right? Like she expires the previous oh, night. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I'm going to say it again. Autopsy seems to be the theme coming up in all of our stories. There needs to be better protocols around this. <laughs> I just feel right. like if you're about to die, you need to call us so that we can come over and do your autopsy. Or a five-day mandatory, like the funeral home can't even touch a body if it can't prove the body is older than five days old. Do you know what I mean? Like I know. Like crematoriums can't touch it. Like I just feel like we need to address this. But I know. agree. I agree. <laughs> The process of embalming literally meant that Joan's blood was drained into public sewer lines, as is still the practice today. Now, you know, I used to work for a county government, and they had a medical examiner, and I got to know that medical examiner, and it was in the course of making friends with this uh, medical examiner that I discovered that blood and guts and everything else went into the public sewer system. And I said, are you kidding me? How can you possibly put those things in the public sewer system? He said, Bridget, do you flush the toilet at your house? Yeah, but not with my intestines in it. I mean, I know, <laughs> but he said, you're just so people would be making a distinction between, you know, bodily functions and what comes out of your gut and uh, and the blood. blood. What's the difference? The blood's probably cleaner if we're being realistic. Doesn't have the butt, doesn't have the gut bacteria in it. <laughs> right. Yeah. That is I mean, gross, we could though. get really gross here, but I'm not going to say anything other than to say that considering what goes into our sewer systems every day for millions of human bodies, I can now see how blood draining is no different. It just feels a little creepier. It does feel creepy. I, I hadn't really put that together either, but where else would they put it? There's not some special secondary sewer. Yeah. You bury it, every dog I've ever had is going to dig it up. <laughs> That's true. Oh. So back to not as gross. Uh, toxicological testing for poisons was not going to happen because of the embalming. And the only thing that Dr. Morris found slightly strange was the color of her pancreas. It was a little maroon colored. We take pink over maroon when it comes to pancreas. Mm. Caroline, I don't know if you knew that, no. but yeah. <laughs> His opinion was. was that Joan may have died from pancreatitis. This is where you have like a duct in your pancreas that gets blocked or multiple ducts. And all these ducts cracking around in there killing you. Jeez. Uh, pancreatitis. <sighs> Seems like a flaw. If you've never had pancreatitis, good for you. I have had one bout of it. And, uh, you know, I, if I had had a gas oven, I, my head would be in there to this day. It's very painful. It's very, very, very painful. I remember your bout because of how, yeah, I'll remember that forever. Oh. The worst thing you'd ever experienced in your life. Oh, yeah. It was the only thing that could get me to eat, stop eating for three whole days until I could get in to see a different doctor. So anyway. Ash Robinson and his wife, Rhea, were, of course, devastated and inconsolable. And those are two words that I'm kind of throwing out there. But we know what, after what we've told you about the center of their life being their daughter, Joan, 
and everything that Ash knows in his secret heart about Joan, they were, I'm sure, beyond inconsolable, beyond devastated. But those are the only two words I have. Ash was certain that John had killed his only child, Joan. And I can certainly see how he would arrive at that conclusion based on the reality that John was still carrying on with his mistress, Anne Kurth. In fact, Joan got ill right after Ash had confronted John and told him that if he did not stop the affair and give up his bachelor pad side residence, Ash was going to ruin him in the public domain of Houston. So there was a threat. Okay. And consequently, Ash believed that Joan was poisoned by John slowly until she died in order to marry Anne. So Ash reached out to multiple pathologists in the Houston area and was told by all of them that Joan was unlikely suffering from pancreatitis. Her symptoms just did not match up. Ash's next step was to meet with Assistant District Attorney D. D. McMaster on the very day of Joan's funeral. You can just imagine how horrified Ash must feel about the prospect of his beloved daughter being buried taking the secrets of her murder into eternity. When Ash wanted McMaster to do his stop the funeral and take possession of the body as evidence of murder by John hus- John's husband, John, ha- John Hill. So in other words, Ash is literally saying to this pathologist, the, um, pardon me, district attorney, McMaster, Stop the proceedings yeah. at the funeral. I'm taking possession of this body, oh, and yeah. I'm doing so in the pursuant of a murder investigation of I'm, Joan Hill. How, how helpful is it, though? Because her body has been sort of like contaminated from the standpoint of trying to gather any evidence from it. Right? I mean. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it. I don't know what he was thinking, but. Apparently, Ash Robinson has the district attorney in his hip pocket. Well, yeah, I mean, he got out of prison. I imagine Ash is like this total ruler of this. You know, he's having uh, cigars and whiskey every night with the judge, the DA, the medical ex- You know, they're all friends. They all went to the same elementary school. Like, that's the kind of thing I'm picturing. And that's fine because he seems like a nice enough person. But now his world has been shattered. Joan, his only daughter, like, so I could see him just flailing, using now, burning up everything he's ever gathered in terms of uh, network valuable assets, you know? It's ready to burn all. You hit the nail on the head. It's a a good old boy network on steroids. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Joan was 38 with an active social life and a robust life that included horses and training and keeping up a horse farm she ran called Chatsworth Farm, not to mention caring for her son, Boot, which, by the way, Caroline, poor Boot. You know, he was only nine years old when his mother died. Well, that's way too young. That's so young. Oh, it's horrible. How can such a vibrant woman such as Joan die in a hospital of unknown causes with blood spewing out of her mouth like Mount Vesuvius, Joan, uh, with her platinum blonde ponytail and her tough and tenacious 
mixed with glamorous way of life, just the image of how she died so violently and mysteriously was just, it was just too much for Ash. He implored his guts out to McMaster to do something. So with Ash's plea to digest and a funeral about to begin, McMaster took up the task of investigating Dr. John Hill. But he, but what could he do without actual evidence of a murder? He started by sending Harris County Medical Examiner Joseph Jackimzik to the funeral home to perform another autopsy. His, opi- his opinion was that Joan likely died of acute hepatitis, possibly a virus-induced and McMaster determined, therefore, that there was just no evidence of murder. So Ash was fill in the blank. What should we say? Furious, on fire, ignited, exploded in rage, or quietly determined to, you know, burn the world down because of his loss? Well, he was all of that, and his next move was to legally petition his son-in-law, Dr. John Hill, a.k.a. Killer in Ash's mind, to allow for a third autopsy, which would mean exhumation of Joan's body. But Joan, pardon me, but John refused. Yeah, which makes sense to me. Again, what evidence are you getting from this contaminated piece of evidence? You know what I mean? It's like you're not going to... And hepatitis, we know from the other, uh, what was her name, Mar- Marie Hill, yes. Marie Hilly, Hilly. Uh, maybe she's Hill and maybe that's John's her brother. But, uh, you know, hepatitis was what her husband looked like he died from too. And she was poisoning all of them forever. <laughs> right, so right. It doesn't really tell you much more. But again, it's like the guy said, it's not, a, it's not evidence of murder, unfortunately. Sorry. Right. You know, if I, if I drop dead in my backyard, you and, and your two brothers are going to be walking back there. Oh, hepatitis. Yeah. <laughs> it looks like hepatitis to me. Either hepatitis. that or pancreatitis. Let's take hepatitis. a look. <laughs> yeah. You know, I am, I, I'll tell you who I'm worried about at this point in our story. I'm worried about Joan because even though she's dead, here she is still being used and controlled by powerful men. Yeah. And I do, and I worry about her son, Boot. Although this was not enough evidence to prove murder, McMaster agreed to bring charges against Dr. John Hill for an obscure charge of, we mentioned it earlier, murder by omission. I love this. I love the way the words are arranged. I don't love murders by omission. I just think that that's a clever term. <laughs> well, the fact that there would be an obscure charge tells me a couple things. Number one, it's a charge. Yeah, it's a real thing. It's on the books. So that tells me that it's not used that much. And based on your reaction, how much you love it, I'm thinking, why not? Well, because it it's that, I like it because of the clever nature of the honesty here. Yes, doing nothing is the same as doing the wrong thing, right? Like if you choose to do something you know is wrong and bad, or you choose to do nothing when something is necessary, those two have equal weight on the side of negligence, right? 
So yes, I think whoever invented murder by omission had a rapier. Yes, wit, and I love those. <laughs> and a command of the English language. I'm with you. It's a That's beautiful a work of art yeah. in terms of legal ease. Yeah, and I'll tell you, this charge it made the trial of John Hill famous. Famous. It should be a movie title. Is there a movie out there, Murder by Omission? Get on it, Hollywood. I don't think so. Well, um, better get on it. <laughs> there's a lot written about this case because it was unusual. And there's a lot written about this case because um, there was such a lot of public uh, interest and so it was ra relatively easy that I was able to find various newspaper articles from at the time. And, of course, back then, they, they newspaper journalists uh, used more of imagination in their writing than <laughs> some do today. You mean like poetic license? <laughs> Poet, yeah, they just, you know, yeah, they, were, they could turn a phrase uh, as an art form. So it's fun to read old newspapers. <laughs> and, you know, she's dead now, and, and these men are digging her up and trying to prove things, uh, using her, using her, using her. I don't like it. But anyway, life is for the living. Um, so poor John Hill now is infamous because of this trial. The third autopsy, by the way, had resulted in a very long report, which it essentially named a lot of viruses and bacteria that could cause sepsis in Joan's body. And it probably could have been treated before the sepsis set in had she been taken to a fully equipped hospital earlier in the course of the illness, which was the centerpiece of the trial. And there were a lot of witnesses. And we're going to talk about those because I think they're both colorful and interesting. Jo Joan's visiting friends and her maid to attest to the fact that John was acting as her doctor during his illness, during her illness, he was seen giving her at least one shot. So murder by omission meant that John had not given his wife, who was also his patient, proper early care, allowing a treatable condition to go unchecked until sepsis killed her. So now what is John going to do? Well, a lot was going on with John during this time. Within three months of his wife's death, he married his mistress, Anne Kurth, oh. who turned out to be abusive, according to John. You know, John, you should have called Caroline and I because we, and me, because we, we, we had some ideas about her going in. She was a maniac who would periodically beat him up. I mean, comeuppance, comeuppance are a thing. And so, you know, yeah, true, we'll instant true. karma there for you, John. <laughs> true. Anne required Boot to go by his given name of Robert, and all ties to Ash and Rhea were cut. Oh, my God. Uh, poor Boot. John needed a good attorney, and the name of the attorney he chose might sound very familiar to listeners. John hired Racehorse Haynes, a defense attorney of legendary status as big as Texas. And I'm not sure uh, how he was going to pay for Racehorse, though. His patients left John Hill's practice in droves. 
so he wasn't really making any money. John had taken to showing up in emergency rooms and giving his business cards to mangled patients. Oh, no. No, no. That's, that's what you call ambulance-chasing lawyer, but this is an ambulance-chasing doctor. Yeah. That is just, oh, my Extra God. Sad. <laughs> it's a metaphor of epic proportions, and I'm going to add to my opinions about John Hill. Here was a man to whom no stoop was too low. Yeah, but he's surviving. I mean, he's... Well, he's getting beat up. He's not laying down, though. So I, okay, there's a I'm part of me that wants to hold. I don't know why, but there's a part of me that wants to hold a place for John that says, you know. Yeah. Maybe now he's yeah. in a bad spot. Uh, I don't know. know there's maybe, something about a hapless idiot. There you who's go. Who's smart enough to be a doctor, but yes. really doesn't know what to do, what to do to put life together. Right. And then he has this affair for God knows how long. And then you marry that woman and she beats you up. Oof. I mean, the universe is telling you something, sir. I don't know what it is, but it's not nice. Well, you know, we know that John is a pursuer of women. Otherwise, I would say, well, maybe she threw himself at her. But remember, he, he and Joan had met because he was at a society group gathering that she was going to be at. I mean, he didn't specifically go for her, but he was no. there to find a rich woman. That's right. He had his sights set on a certain lifestyle. Let's he say. knew what he did not have, which was ambition, get up and go, or I don't know what he didn't have. Mm -hmm. But anyway, although Racehorse Haynes advised John not to, John divorced Anne before the trial started, and she, of course, went straight to Ash. Ash told Pardon me, Anne told Ash that John had confessed to growing bacteria from feces in petri dishes and injecting the result into everything Joan ate and drank and even into her body using shots. Now, Caroline, uh, that is a jaw-dropping accusation. So yeah. specific. And really just disturbingly gross. Very <laughs> gross. At this point, I think Ash was probably overjoyed to have an ally in this fight against John Hill. But this ally of his, Ms. Kurth, would prove to be a double-edged sword. When Ann Kurth was called to the witness stand in John's trial, she knew she could not repeat what John had allegedly told her. This third-hand testimony was too damaging and too unreliable and the judge barred it. Yeah. But racehorse, being racehorse and knowing that Ann Kurth was a hothead and out for vengeance, cross-examined Ann in a way as to subtly, subtly elicit a blurt from her in front of the jury. And the blurt was, John told me he killed his wife by giving her a shot, she screamed out, and the judge declared a mistrial. Dang, dang. <laughs> Ash was apoplectic and only soothed slightly by the scheduling of a retrial, which kept getting delayed. And by contrast, after the mistrial, John was broke but happy. He had met a woman named Connie at a music event, and they were in love. She was probably the woman he actually should have married to start with. She was devoted to John and his son, Robert, formerly known as Boot. Connie and John spent countless hours together in the throes of romance 
and listening to and playing music together in the music room. They were so happy. They were floating on rugs, you know, at the ceiling level of the music room. They were just, they were just floating. I feel like what, whenever I say the music room, I need to put a frame of Broadway lights around it because it, there's just something about that music room that represents the true John. Yeah. And like this, the fir- real yes. safe zone. No, I do feel kind of bad about this. I, you know, part of me wonders if Anne Kurth wasn't the one who did the feces, you know, project and then just somehow coaxed John into giving the shot. I don't know, but I just feel like there's something about him that makes me feel like he's a little bit of a dopey, innocent partner part here, but he's the scapegoat. I don't know. Maybe. Do I see him as calculating? No, I do not. Yeah, that's or vindictive or, you know, like rageful. Like, I don't know that I see any of that in the personality coming out from the right getting. Right. I mean, you know, to be broke and to be the happiest you've ever been. That's not exactly how murderers tend to operate. Yeah. Emotionally. But John was very happy, the happiest he'd ever been, and he was very in love with his wife. Connie was genuinely kind and quiet and charming, and because of her, John's image in the community had been somewhat repaired, and his plastic surgery practice had been restored somewhat. And the two were just inseparable. You know, it did seem to bother them that John's new trial was scheduled to begin in November 1972. The evidence hadn't gotten any better, and Racehorse Haynes was still John's defense attorney. So why should they let worry interfere with their bliss? In September 1972, and remember, his trial is going to begin in November 1972, uh, John and Connie asked uh, John's mother to watch over Robert, also known as Boot, in their home at 1561 Kirby Drive while they went to San Francisco for a vacation and then to Las Vegas for the second half of a plastic surgery conference. They were scheduled to come home September 24 and had decided to just put off worry about getting ready for the November trial until after their trip. Connie would later tell Thomas Thompson for his book, Blood and Money, which is a fantastic book, and I did read it, and and uh, Thomas Thompson has passed away, but if I could meet him, I would endeavor to do so because he wrote such a good book about this case. But he wrote in the book that she and John were blissfully and peacefully living a loving life, and their trip to San Francisco was such a tonic that they felt strong very strong, headed into the November trial. I've got to say, you know, Caroline, I'm very glad Connie and John found each other. Me too. I, I'm happier for Connie than John because I still have my suspicions. Right. Yeah. Well, negligence is still there. I mean, it is a murder by omission. I believe that, but I don't know that he was the catalyst for starting it. If I had to, go, you know, I just, I don't know. I buy into that old saying, every story deserves a happy ending. Mm-hmm. I, I just, be, I believe in happy endings. 
at least Connie is getting what Joan longed for but never received. So that's bittersweet for me. Yeah, I mean, that you is know, hard because he was capable, just wasn't the right fit. That's why I say, I'll just say I'm happier for Connie. <laughs> I mean, I'm just being honest here. John is, I still like John, yeah. but eh, John, you know, you could have done better. But you know what? I look at myself now at 68 years old, back at my former self in my teens and 20s and 30s. Bridget, mm-hmm. you could have done better. So, <laughs> yeah. We, we all could have done differently. on the young. Yeah, for sure. We all could have done something different. Would it have been better? Who knows? <laughs> yeah, who knows? And who knows? Coming home from Las Vegas, Connie hopped out of the taxi while John paid the driver. She opened the door to their home. Robert, also known as Boot, and his grandmother were there, but something was wrong. There was a stranger in the house. Robert and his grandmother were tied up. The man tried to tie her up too, but she bolted and made it to the neighbor's house to call 911. So now we've got uh, Connie running to the neighbor's house. John had paid the taxi driver and perhaps chatted a bit with him. I mean, John was really, really, really happy. He was on cloud nine. And then he walked down his driveway and into his home, not not realizing what was going on inside. And John Hill was gunned down execution style inside his home. His son and mother were witnesses. Caroline, Dr. John Hill is dead. Dead. That's so crazy. Police were called to the scene thanks to Connie. It was September 24th, 1972, an otherwise ordinary overcast Sunday in the mid-70s. Police quickly determined that this was no home invasion robbery, even though John's wallet and briefcase were taken. The killer had come for Dr. John Hill, and once John was dead, the killer left the scene. And to make sure he was dead, John wasn't just shot point blank. His killer tapped him up from his eyes to his, I said tapped, I mean taped, taped him up to from his eyes to his chin so if the bullets didn't kill him, he would suffocate. Whoa. That's cold. It's That's weird. cold as ice. Like, don't people normally put a plastic bag over some time? I just, I've oh, never... yeah. BTK did that once That's or twice. Whole, I mean, you know. Crazy. Just to, it's just, to me, that's just a torture. Yeah. Killing. But I mean, you know, they did it for good measure, I guess. I think it's important here to stop and remember the backstory leading up to this murder, though. Dr. John Hill had won a mistrial in his murder by omission trial that began February 15th, 1971. John stood accused of not taking proper steps to save the life of his wife, Joan Hill, when she was obviously gravely ill. His motive was allegedly to be in the affair that he had with Ann Kurth, the woman he immediately married after Joan was dead. Yeah. So this was an obscure charge. The assistant district attorney, uh, McMaster, brought against uh, John after relentless pressure from Joan Hill's father, Ash Robinson. Remember, Ash had doted on, spoiled, and protected his only child, Joan, from the day he and his wife, Rhea, adopted her as a baby. And, you know, remember, it's still widely believed that Ash was secretly not just Joan's adoptive father, but her biological father as well. But at any rate, he didn't let her out of his sight. I would suffocate under that kind of situation, 
but I am not Joan. And it's really all she knew. Yeah. I don't know why that thought came to me about suffocating, but I guess it's because Dr. John may be suffocated. I don't know. But well, it's an interesting dynamic and it worked for Joan. You know, Joan got to do the things that gave her bliss, you know, and then she struggled in this marriage arena. So I think I, I, you know, there, yeah, there's a part that she didn't learn, which was to say like, do a self inventory. Do I like any of this? What choices do I want to make for me? It was probably more about what would my dad want? What do my parents want? Right. Yeah. There's some sacrifice there when you're doing that. Okay, well, I'm not suffocating, so I'm going to take a deep breath and tell you that John Hill had divorced Ann Kurth just a few months into their marriage, and Ann became an ally of Ash as he was planning to bring his son-in-law to justice. So when his murder trial was declared a mistrial, Dr. John Hill built his practice back up, married a music-loving woman named Connie, and was feeling very confident as he faced a new trial in two months. John and Connie were very, very happy spending most of their time together in his now infamous music room, but then John was murdered hideously. So that's the book jacket version of where we are right now in this family murder, because after a lengthy investigation into John's execution-style murder, police had the shooter, whose name was Bobby Vandiver. He was located through ballistics because the gun that fired the bullets recovered was traced back to a man who reported it stolen from a whore, a vernacular of the day, a sex worker in today's vernacular. The sex worker's name was Marsha McKittrick, and her so-called madam was Lila Paulus, and it looked like they were all involved. Now, Bobby was interrogated, and remember, John Hill's mother was watching his son, Robert, while he and Connie were vacationing and in Las Vegas for a medical convention. So police brought her in, and she picked Bobby Vandiver out of a lineup, and he confessed. He also threw Marsha and Lila under the bus in the process, and they were all arrested for murder. And they were all released on bail awaiting trial. That doesn't happen that much anymore. Yeah. I mean, sometimes it does, but, you know, back then it was what you did. You, right. you know, they didn't have that many jails. Nowadays, you know, jail is big business now that a lot has been privatized. Yeah, a little so too now, big on the business side. Cause, uh-huh, you know, I think so, whatever. too. But That's back to our story. <laughs> The three co-defendants all pointed to Ash Robinson as the one who put a price on Dr. Hill's head for killing his daughter. Uh Uh-oh. Okay, Ash, let's see you get out from under this. (laughs) In a strange twist, Bobby Vandiver skipped town after his indictment. I don't think that's strange. And was fatally shot in a neighboring town when he pulled a gun on a local deputy to avoid being caught. Marsha McKittrick also skipped bail, but was apprehended. Marsha McKittrick was the getaway driver in John Hill's murder, and she received 10 years after pleading guilty, and she got out in five years. Wow. Once again, in the past, you know, there were some get-out-of-jail-free cards rolling around. 
Lila Paulus was accused of a much more direct role in the murder because she was the one who allegedly made the deal with Ash Robinson for the murder for hire, took the money and received from Ash a handmade drawing of the, of the home of Dr. Hill and its layout. Her trial brought a lot of denials from Ash Robinson, and there really was no evidence of his involvement other than you'd have to be brain dead not to think he had something. Well, yeah. But that's not legally, you know, that's not evidence. No, but it's, I mean, the likelihood is greater for doing it off of probabilities. I yeah, I mean, you know, we're talking about a man who was very, very rich. He carried a great deal of cash with him as he wheeled and dealed in various enterprises. He still had going on, so uh, it was not possible to trace his hit money versus money he spent on business dinners, horse racing, and the like. Right. So I can feel him slipping out of the cuffs right now as we talk about Lila Paulus. She got convicted by a jury and sentenced to 35 years. Ash Robinson was never charged in the murder due to uh, lack of direct evidence. Hearsay evidence of convicted felons was deemed as too shaky. Yeah. Think about the time. It's still the 70s. If you're a sex worker, you don't exist on the same level as just an average Joe living. There's in that. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That's just the truth. There's still some of that going on today. Oh, please. Shouldn't you know, be Long that Island way. Island serial killer. Yeah. I mean, I mean, justice is blind, but not really <laughs> in small towns in America. I mean, so that's, Ash is no fool. Ash has probably done a lot of things that didn't even catch wind of anything for right. him to wiggle out of. And then there's one right. on the books that we know he wiggled out of. I mean, come on. He got this murder by omission charge on, you know, to happen. He's he did a lot of things. I mean, you know, Ash is impressive and scary at the same time. And I'm going to tell you just flat out, it bugs me that three killers whose background I read and end up feeling sorry for the disadvantages they all faced. Now they paid the entire freight for a rich man who hired out his dirty work. And that mm. pisses me off. Well, anyway. Yeah, because it's. It's so freaking trite here in America that that's exactly how it's done. And it is very annoying because they pay the ultimate price. And Ash is just sitting up there with more money looking for his next less than morally sound decision to make. You know, Right. I mean, you know, I don't know. And I want to say this straight up also. Ash is innocent in the eyes of the law. And maybe he is actually and factually innocent. I don't know. Yeah. So what happened to Connie and Robert? Well, according to statements they made in public, they both retreated to grieve privately in the same house where the murder took place. They both underwent long-term psychiatric treatment for the trauma and loss of their beloved husband and father. You know, that just breaks my heart. And seriously, Connie and Robert were complete victims in all of this. They just loved John Hill with everything they had, and they saw him get wiped out. Yeah. That's not. Robert believed that his grandfather, Ash Robinson, was involved in the murder of his father. He said that this was the first thought he had the instant his father was shot. He was only 11 when his father was murdered. Well, that tells Remember me. Remember that- now, he was nine when his mother died. Well, yeah, but it, what it tells me is that the tension is palpable everywhere he goes in this family between Ash and his father, period. <laughs> You know, Lila Paulus had testified at her trial that Ash Robinson told her he wanted to kill John Hill to get custody of his grandson. 
but the murder wound up driving a wedge between Ash and Robert. There was a separation there that seemed bitter and irreversible. But now listen to this, Caroline. On August 29, 1977, testimony began in a $7.6 million civil damage suit alleging that Ash Robinson arranged and paid for Dr. John Hill's death. The lawsuit was brought by Connie Hill, Robert Hill, and Myrna Hill, Dr. John Hill's mother. Now, remember, Robert Hill, that's Boot. Yeah. So, you know, it's Boot, it's Connie, and it's Myrna, Myrna, Dr. Hill's mother. In his opening remarks, Ash Robinson's attorney stated, Ash Robinson, unlike Hill, does not accept homicide as a solution to a problem. So here in front of his grandson, he's accused Robert's father of murder again. He can't let it go, even in his own defense. No. On October of that year came a verdict of not guilty. One of the jurors said, we all agreed that there was a conspiracy, that, but there was just not enough evidence to convict Ash Robinson. Wow. is that So he got away again. I mean, I know that that's the criminal standard, beyond a reasonable doubt. Is it the civil standard? <laughs> because I wonder if they could have done yeah. something here the way we did with the OJ stuff. But yeah, I just. But, you know, I mean, it's a tell into Ash that he's not going to settle this civil case. He's not. He's he... not going to settle it. They wanted $7.6 million. Yeah. He had that. You know he did. He could have offered half that and not had a problem. But I, I think you're right. It t- it's telling in that statement of. Unlike my son-in-law, I don't go to murder to do my business. Like, okay, wow, even here you can't let it go. Like, it's it's it became a thing for him the minute he wasn't getting these convictions against John Hill. The you know his 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 only source of life, his daughter is is murdered, taken away. He sees John as the culprit. How many trials has poor John been under at this point? You know. So I he, love it that you're asking how many trials, because speaking of trials, yeah, during the time of the civil trial in which he was found not guilty, Ash Robinson filed a civil lawsuit in federal court against Thomas Thompson, oh. the author of Blood and Money. His charge was that the book wrongly accused him by way of hints of complicity in Dr. John Hill's murder. The <laughs> lawsuit ended in a victory for Ash. And he and Rhea receded from public view, according to news articles of the time. I could not find any court records regarding how much money he won, but I imagine that was not his point. How does Ash continue to win these? That one seems wrong because well, all Ash is lawsuit is- and this guy who wrote the book, and it was really good, Thomas Thompson. And mm-hmm. yes, he did lean heavy onto, I mean, he implied very strongly that, that Ash was the killer and, but he had no facts. But the circumstantial evidence was enough to make those inferences, I feel like, but I don't know how liable works, but this is shocking. Thomas Thompson, bless his heart, he lost. And for his award-winning journalism, but only, well, sorry, I just want to say Ash is literally going out saying John has killed his wife, even though there's a mistrial, there's no evidence of that either. But nobody, but then one guy makes one inference with all the circumstantial evidence available to all of us to see, we would all make the same inference. And he wins. Like this is, it does make me feel like Ash is a bit of a god and untouchable. He clearly is untouchable. Yeah, I agree. (laughs) 
And, you know, then there are these journalists who are stellar. They are rock stars in their field. And I consider Thomas Thompson to be one of them. He won a lot of journalism awards for that book. But he was also sued for libel by Ann Kurth. And you may recall that she was John Hill's mistress and later his wife for a very short time, beating him up all the time, before she sided with Ash in the murder for omission trial, murder by omission trial of John Hill. She sued Thomas Thompson for describing her as a provocative sex object in Blood and Money, but she lost that because according to the jury, what Thomas Thompson wrote in his book was defamatory for sure, but it was also true. Yo, this is crazy <laughs> to me. <laughs> this is like, okay, the snapshot into, you know, a system that is not equitably used or executing justice at an equitable level. I'm sorry, what? How do you, whoa, how do you quantify whether someone is a provocative sex object? What? <laughs> I don't like Anne or anything, but I just, I'm into, you know, justice being blindly applied and it does not seem to be happening here. I know. <laughs> anyway, you wrote a hell of a good book, Thomas Thompson, says me. That's where <laughs> I'm going to leave Thomas Thompson. In a rare quote from Robert Hill, otherwise known as Boot, about his grandfather, Robert, told a reporter, quote, my father did not kill my mother. I bet my life on it. That's what Ash might have thought, but he was wrong. Ash gives lots of people the impression he's a charming old man, a grandfather who loves his grandson. Well, I am wise to that image. If I saw him face to face, I'd, praise, I'd probably say something like, why did you kill my father? Why did you ruin our lives? In September 1991, Connie married a Texas oil man, Jim Calloway, and Robert Hill Boots put the Houston 1561 Kirby Street home on the market for $1.75 million. I just can't afford to keep it up, he said. He told reporters writing about the house going up for sale. I don't have the kind of money to live in this thing for the rest of my life. Owning a big house is a big responsibility, particularly for someone as inexperienced as I am. Well, there's a wise young man. Yeah. I'll mention here that this article about the sale of the house came out when Robert was just 21. So he's thinking like an adult, even though his brain is not yet completely formulated. I'd say he's probably got a really good brain inside that head of his, just like his father. Yeah. You know, his father was a doctor and a very good doctor, but he's had those little character flaws. Anyway, he's got a lot of wisdom already. He was in college in Colorado at the time and it, that he made that comment. And he became a lawyer who never speaks publicly about his parents or what happens. He appears to be a prosecutor in Maryland. I looked him up, and there he was, uh, a prosecutor in the state of Maryland, and perhaps he's retired by now. He's around 62 years old right now. 62 years old is, you know, maybe he's 63 now since I researched him, but he's still young. As for Ash and Rhea, they moved to Florida in 1978 to get away from what happened to their family in Houston. 
Ash died in 1985 at the age of 87, and Rhea followed him in death two years after that. So these two took a lot with them to the grave. They were together for over 60 years. That warms my heart a lot, Caroline. Yeah. And all the reading I did about this family, I could never find one word about Rhea's interests outside her family. Yeah. I imagine her quietly making the world a little better by having been here. But I don't even know why I feel that way, except, you know, I'm looking at Boots and I'm thinking, you know, I'm looking at how she stuck by Ash. I'm looking at, I'm looking at their daughter, Joan, I think was a good person. She was going to give up all her horsey stuff just to be a mother. I mean, well, it was like all the intricacies of these folks' lives um, interweaving with the history of the way we are as Americans, the way our families have been, this actually hits on a lot of things because you've got the big secret with the kids. You've got this idea of being handed more money than than like three lifetimes at the time and being told, fitter it away and then make some for yourself. Like it's just... It has all these components, you know, of it of does. You know, there's a hope and optimism that uh is it feels sadly unavailable sometimes in yeah. our world. Um but I want to take us back to the article written in nineteen eighty one about Robert Hill selling the family home, the one with the world famous music room. Because in that article, Caroline, 21-year-old Robert Boots said something amazing. He told reporters that he had visited his grandfather, Ash, and his grandmother, Rhea, in Florida six or more times lately. Now, he's only 21, and he's visited them six or eight times, six or more, looking at thousands of pictures of his mother. Maybe Rhea took all those pictures. And so I see her and her quiet life pull the family together with these pictures. There are so many pictures on the internet, even today, about her accomplishment with horses. But something tells me that Robert saw thousands of pictures of his mother when she was little, just a little girl. Robert said his grandfather was given half share in the Houston house per the conditions of his daughter, Joan's will. He said that they were working together to put the money from the sale of the house in a trust that Robert will have access to when he turns 33. And of course, I told you he's about 63 now, so he got access to it eventually. Robert told the reporter, the important thing is that we're working together to sell the house. There are not two sides pitted against each other. The reporter wrote that the bizarre deaths of both his parents and all the trials that followed put a riff between Robert Hill and his grandfather, Ash Robinson. But, said Robert in this article, that gap is closed. This ends the bittersweet and tragic story of the family that Ash and Rhea Robinson began in 1931. They so wanted a family, and in the end, I think they got their wish, but it came at an incalculable cost. And I think that there was a murderer or two in that family. Yeah. But I think that Boots, also known as Robert, uh, 
I think that he is just good. Oh, yeah. So wise in such a good soul kind of way. And the gap is closed. That's so beautiful because that took something from him too to make happen. You know, it isn't just Robert doing it. It takes something from Ash to make that situation work. And and his mother, all in honor of the mother, Joan. I just think that's kind of beautiful. And I- It is very beautiful. I'm happy for them now, but it's got to be, yeah, an incalculable cost is a good way to say that. It really is. And um, we love you, Boots, and we're sorry for what has happened. And we're very impressed with the way that you have proceeded with your life. You have brought people together. And being an attorney, I'm sure you made a difference in many, many lives along the way. So today's episode is researched and written and narrated by Bridget and Caroline, produced by Andy. Our research is solely based on public domain documents, including legal documents, articles, and books about our subject. Episodes are aired every other week. If you like us, listeners, please subscribe and give us a five-star review. Tell your friends about us in person and by social media. All of these actions help new listeners find us. Thank you, and we appreciate you. And we want you to know this is the last recording of 2023, and it's been our sheer delight to be in this year with our listeners and appreciate all the support that you've given us along the way. And don't forget now to live and let live. Well, bye-bye, Caroline. Bye-bye.